Gyro Callers, welcome back. I'm Peter, and this is an episode about revolutions. This is a conversation I had with Dodi. We ask why he started a tech company in Egypt, and we talk about revolutions and how our lives have fitted into power, politics, and freedom. We go around the world from Brazil to Myanmar and look back to like, Indonesia and how it got lucky in its transition to democracy. We really love making this podcast with you. Thank you for your Valentine's submissions. And a reminder that our next project is about first memories. So please do send us voice notes um, on speakpipe.com slash Cairo Calling or on WhatsApp. It's in the show notes. Welcome back. Yeah. Hi, Doji. Welcome back. How are we doing? Uh, hi, Peter. Good. I mean, it's pretty cold in, in Cairo right now. I think we are at uh, 15 degrees. Are you wearing a raincoat indoor, Daisy? No, I'm wearing fancy, uh, what do you call it, windbreaker made in Iceland. So. Uh-huh. <laughs> do, you, do you sleep in it as well? Oh, well, I wish. No, no, no. We have blankets now. I, mean, <laughs> I have this classic Egyptian blanket, you know, the, those massive ones. Oh, they're really heavy. Yeah. 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 Nice, but you, you, you put heaters on as well? No, I have cats, so. <laughs> okay, amazing. How do they keep warm? Uh, they stay on, on the bed, so that's, that's what they do. Oh, you both, you keep each other warm. <laughs> there you go. Good. A natural heater. <laughs> Are you having, like, in Egypt, there's all these nice drinks to have in the cold, like um, like the hummus bishams and sahrap and like, all that kind of stuff? Oh, I don't. I mean, I haven't spent any time outside uh, this month, I think. So uh-huh. I've been pretty much like, you know, uh, yeah, stuck at work, working mm-hmm. and planning for the year. So mm-hmm. are the plans? Uh, ambitious. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> Take over the world. Yeah. <laughs> Is yeah, that ambitious? I, ambitious because you've got big dreams, or ambitious because just like, like it might not go very well. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, uh, I don't know. I mean, let's see, right? I think we have a couple of things going on, and we just have to log it down and and have the contract signed. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Now I just don't want to speak about it because you know jinx and all that kind of stuff. So I, I had a question about this though, like you. Um, so you work in tech, so you could work anywhere you wanted. You could have been fired in California last week if you'd wanted, right? Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. could have could have been laid off. Um, how come you picked Egypt? Uh, there was no plan, right? Uh, I have always wanted to live in Africa. And... Also, like, I started a company back in, in Chicago, like, 20 years ago. And the plan was that, okay, um, as a consulting company, we can't really compete with India because they have the scale, uh, they speak English, and then they can, you know, it's just, it just a hard uh, spot to compete for, like, a company that started by two guys, you know, uh, on credit card. So if you want to build a development center, you have to go somewhere else. And in, in, in Africa, right, you have the Nigeria, maybe Ghana, uh, South Africa, 
maybe Kenya and also Egypt, right? Because Egypt has a large population and high, have um, you know pretty good universities in technically. And so yeah, we pick Egypt. That's it. So there's no not much of analysis. So. Really, of like, so you picked it on the basis of where you would find software developers. Definitely. And then, you and it's also a strategic country, right? So you rocked up, uh, and then like you kind of turn up on a tourist visa, and you're like, "I'd like to hire some software developers." Now we have a project, right? right. And then we just say, "Okay, let's build a team in Egypt," and then that's what happens. So, I right, see. So first, you built the team, and then you turned up yourself afterwards. No, I, I moved. I moved. Uh, we have a local partner. Yeah, like a person. Um, yeah, because I used to host uh, inter- interns from Egypt in Chicago. Uh-huh. That's how we made, build a connection. And then one of them has a friend, and then we just met and just we click, and it's okay. Let's let's start on a company together. So amazing. And then how? Like that was kind of over ten years ago. No, we started the company uh, in like in the US. It was uh, two thousand three. And then we started the company in Egypt in 2006, right? And then I've been, I was like traveling in and out. Uh, I used to be in Czech Republic and, you know, flying in and out of Cairo and, and Prague. Yeah, I mean, like that was, you know, the story. So it's, it's really interesting because it must have changed like a lot in terms of the availability of people that know software programming because in 2006, that wouldn't have been anywhere no. near as much, right? It must be quite a developed No, no, I mean, like, sort of technical, technical schools, they have Cairo University, Einshams, and a lot of that kind of stuff. The potential is always there, mm. right? It's just the funding, uh, the infrastructures. Um, for example, the funding infrastructure for startups just bloom in the past five years, for example. You, know, you see a lot of startups uh, and then venture capitalists coming to Cairo, right? And yeah, that's the difference. The, the talent is always here. Uh, right now, if you go to you know Amsterdam, you probably meet a lot of Egyptians, right? Because there's a lot of Egyptian engineers in Europe right now, so... But people say there. things like uh, people don't have the skills that are aligned with the labor market, that the education isn't preparing people for no, I mean, what's like, needed. The, uh, here's the thing. The talent is there. Mm. It's just the talent is oppressed by the high you know, the education system, meaning right. that the engineers here, they are overburdened by subjects. Like they take like nine subjects and eight subjects. It just that's too much stuff, right? But you'll see. I mean, like the talent is there. Um, if you survive the system, right, and if you are trained well, they can adapt. I mean, right now, you know, I mean, we have uh, part-time employees that just on the third year engineering students, and they're so working part-time. Them, you don't see them as graduates. You see them as survivors. That's hilarious. Good. No, I mean like because yeah. it is a system they have to survive. Yeah. Right? With that can that many like burden of subjects and to study, yeah, full time. Mm. So right now, for example, right, we have and I mean we we train people in the summer and then we have part time students working for us. And in a year working part time they develop incredibly. So there's like the in sort of speaking to 
young people in Egypt, what really struck me was um, how much self-motivation was needed because like the external um, feedback mechanisms weren't there, right? Like I, I've been quite like, if we're talking about the privilege and whatnot, one of the privileges I've had is if I do something well, I get instant feedback, positive feedback about doing it well, whether that's in school or in work or whatever. But often my friends in Egypt didn't get that. And you get kind of like repressed by your, by the formal education. And then the workplace, you start doing something well, and that just puts you into trouble. And your boss is like annoyed that they might be, you might be stealing their, their limelight. And there might not be very many opportunities to use your skills anyway. And so you kind of have to like really be, um, young people have to be really self-motivated to to get through that because there aren't so many places that they can like use their skills and sort of flourish and 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 grow in a more natural way. Yeah, but also okay, people are quick to learn, right? So you just need to give them space, and within you know two or three weeks, right? They just they get the idea, and then they they behave differently. All the creativities, uh, is they're all there, right? It, mm-hmm. They just need recognition and nurturing and, and training, right? And directions, right? And and then example, right? That's that's the purpose of leadership, right? To show the way and allow people to to excel uh, and fulfill their potential. So, mm. that's um, it's very inspiring the way you the way you talk about that. What's um. So that's why you, you came to Egypt. Is that also why you stayed in Egypt, or those are different reasons? Um, I don't know. I mean, like, I think, right, because I went through the Egyptian revolution, right, from the beginning. So I have the experience of the Indonesian revolution, and that's how all of us have. Uh, in 1998, I was a student in, in, in Australia, uh-huh. And in '98, we have this um, mass revolution, similar to Egypt, actually. Uh, we I have a, nothing about the '98 revolution. Uh, we had a dictatorship that lasts for 32 years. Yeah. Uh, the president uh, called Suharto. Yeah. So he was in power. So he was like Mubarak, actually. Yeah. And we have uh, uh, in '97 we had uh, the Asian currency crisis. So all like all these currencies collapsing, and in Indonesia we have we were forced to accept the IMF, you know, the program, the yeah, usual stuff, classic. classic, and then protests by students uh, start, you know, to happen, and then I think in '98, um, I think in May or something, um, there there was one big. Uh, uh, Protests by by students and six of them, six or seven of them were killed by police, mm. and they just inflamed the population, right? Mm. And suddenly parents start enjoying the students, and so this this thing, so that we have I think three four months of of intense protests. Um, actually, uh, the President Suharto visited Mubarak. Amazing. And then, okay, for some encouragement, for some encouragement, or and then when he returned, he resigned. 
Oh, shit. After his visit to Egypt, he actually resigned. Oh, wow. Because the student just took over the parliament and all that kind of stuff while he was traveling. And yes, I was in Australia at that time and I was active at the Indonesian, you know, Students Association. So we were protesting. Uh, you were protesting in Australia. Yeah, yeah. Uh, see, that I must still, have been like very pre like blog era. But oh, you yeah. had websites or what? It was the early internet, right? It was 97, right. 98. And I was in QUT in Brisbane. And I remember we were like, you know, Indonesian student, we did a protest and I was on mm. the first, uh, I was the first line. And I thought to myself, you know, uh, he better be, he better resign. Otherwise I'll be in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I will not be able, you know, I mean, if the revolution failed, right? Because you got your picture, you got your pictures. Picture, and yeah. there's a, we went in, you know, there was like a videos on ABC News Australia. So but it's, it's really tough people, like decisions people make and obviously like one of the things that makes the process also helpful is people are risking that, right? Like, yep. is that a risk that, like, at what point does that come into your head? Like, before you go out or, like, when they're taking the picture, you're like, oh, what have I got into? How I, I don't much think is you really... it calculated and how much is it, like, afterwards you realize, oh, well, okay, I hope it works out? <laughs> well, the honest thing about um, protest, right? Is that you have to be there. You mm. have to show up, right? You participate. You don't have to do anything. You just have to show up. Because the size of the demonstration is part of that, right? The result yeah. of the demonstration. Uh, so if you show up, you are there. You cannot really delegate it. And so you feel the solidarity with people. And I think the thought of, okay, should I do this? You know, that calculation is probably afterwards happens, okay. Right? And even the factor of, mm. I wasn't alone, right? There were many students across Indonesia and, yeah, and in Australia as well. So, so that was a successful revolution. Yeah, well, yeah we were lucky. And, and then it transitioned to a more democratic system. Yeah, a fully democratic yeah. system uh, with time time limit and then direct presidential elections. And but like your but, luck, your luck wore out, don't you? Because no. like, yeah, you weren't so lucky in the Egyptian one. But it, but Egyptian one wasn't my revolution, right? Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. I did. I mean, I was more like a witness. Yeah. I, I did show up right on the first day. Actually, um, I think in Mustafa Mahmoud in the scene. Uh, Was the that the 25th of, of January? The 25th of January, yeah. Like 2011. Yeah. yeah. But people were talking about that, right? Because it was people were inspired by the one in Tunisia. Yeah. So there were a lot of calls to, um, to go protest. And, you know, I have my business partner and his brother and our friend. He's like, okay, are we going to... And I was telling them, look, okay, you have a choice, right? I've had the experience in Indonesia. And this is uh, going to be a historical point in your life and in your country. And you have a choice, mm. right? Are you going to show up tomorrow or you're not, you're not going to do it, right? And the decision that you'll make tonight or tomorrow morning, right, will be the story that you will tell your children and your grandchildren, right? So at the, at the point of history in your country, what did you do? Mm. 
So I, that's what I told them. I still remember that's, that. That's quite a um, rally-rousing speech. No, because I mean like, you know, because I have the direct experience, right? Because for me, this was the second thing, right? The second things that happened right? after mm. So I've seen, I've, I've experienced it. And if you, if, you have, if you haven't gone through it, right, sometimes you have doubts. Right? And that, so that experience from Indonesia just let, um, allow me to have a longer perspective. Right? Because things like revolution, you know, you can't, there's no guarantee on the results. Mm. Right? You just have to, it is a process. Right? And then this happens to any, proce- any, any process of change, right? You could be an active participant or you could be a passive participant, right? And things just, you know, so at least you try. Mm. And that was worth something, right? And yeah, so... Not being directly in protest. There was, in 2003, there was a big one in the UK against the Iraq war. Um, so about a million people were in London demonstrating against going to war. It was something that the Tony Blair government uh, ignored and went anyway. Um, like there were kind of, yeah, various reasons not for going. Like there's a bit of an accessibility reason mm-hmm. that um, like it's a long walk and a big crowd and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Neither of those very easy for me. But also um, maybe that that willingness to be part of a group, uh, maybe a bit less willing <laughs> to um, like subsume myself to that bigger mission, often because I have sort of relative uncertainty. So I couldn't I couldn't even tell you like if is did I not go in two thousand three because. Um, because I was in doubt or because of access reasons or what, I remember kind of being a bit devil's advocates on, on different sides of the should we go to should we go to war? So I don't know what my exact opinion was at the um at the time of his scene became anti-war. And like the more time that passes, the more evident it was that it was a sort of catastrophic um and devastating uh, mistake and a kind of like just just as bad as our colonial enterprises and has really destabilized the region. It's real kind of shame on this on this country and uh, and and the U.S. in particular um, about what happened. But yeah, I didn't go. And it would have been nice, like now, it would have been nice to have gone to the protest because then that would have been clearer in my head. Uh, like at this juncture, I was against it, um, even though that didn't work. Or maybe it would have worked if I'd gone. Like maybe that was what. <laughs> maybe you, <laughs> yeah. you could have that been that. That was the that, straw. That was yeah. the straw. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, what is it? The butterfly effect, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> Tony Blair would have seen my picture. Yeah. And it would have, it would have touched him. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But anyway, you know, but Tony Blair was, you know, was pretty much like following George W. Bush, right? It was all driven by the US. And Yeah, for sure. And it was partly like, oh, like if we if we go along with it, we can influence them. But like at some point you got to pull the plug on that. 
And it was very much a kind of personal mission that, I mean, that he's still kind of on when he pops up. He pops up every now and again. Um, I think a friend, like a colleague of mine saw him in Cairo, potentially, because he advises interesting (laughs) governments um, (laughs) around the world. And yeah. I do, he's got he's got sensible things to say, but also, yeah, you just sort of um like there are some figures that you just like, look, you've done it, like, please leave public life. Like, I don't <laughs> even care if what you have to say is correct. And it's worse when I agree with him, right? Like it's much yeah, yeah, it's much yeah, worse yeah. when I agree with him. It's just like please leave public life. Um You've always said you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, exactly. Just see, like, you've you've done more than overstayed your welcome. I was listening to a program today because, um, like, each each January there's that revolution. That's right. The the anniversary of the revolution in Egypt. I guess it's now twelve years. I was listening to someone that was saying, "Ah, oh, the first, like." Like five years after, there's a kind of lot of there's a lot of grief, and then like there's still processing the grief. But more than ten years afterwards, people are kind of saying, "Look, we did what we could. We did what we could do." Some of the revolution lives on in how it's changed people's mindsets, mm-hmm. um, and maybe it inspires the younger generation. This this guy, it was kind of like a bit of an activist type. So there, his opinion of the general population will not be the general population's opinion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but he said there are lots of people that didn't go out in 2011, like wish they had, um, because now you now you can't. Um, like what's like in, in the way that you witnessed it? How do you? sort of um like reflect reflect on it each year when it comes up no because i mean you know it's, it's revolution is a tricky thing right you cannot really revise history revisit history right? what do you call it the revisionist history right oh if this something happened the alternative would be better I think you're a counterfactual revisionist. Yeah, contra- yeah, contrafactuals, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, that's why when I say it's about the Indonesian revol- revolution, it, we were lucky. Mm. That's it, right? I mean, there are certain factors that you can say, okay, because of this, this happened and this happened, it will turn out right, right? But for the past five years, I mean, in, I think 98 to 2003, we were called uh, the sick man of Asia, and the idea of Indonesia to break up, it was real, right? I mean, in 1999, there were like so many, uh, what do you call it, tribal uh, clashes. Mm-hmm. Like in the island of Borneo, where my island is, right? Um, there's an incident called Sampit, where two tribes just, you know, pretty much like initiated a tribal war. And we're talking about 10,000 people died. And these are, right... Uh, one tribe uh, slaughtering another tribe, like fish, uh, more like the you know the the migrant tribe by Mercedes, and then cut their heads and put it on the stake, mm. right? So because it was turmoil, and so it this was, kind of it was things, kind of like power grabs motivated, or like uh, now we don't have like the policemen watching, we can 
like carry on no, hitting each I think other. Because, I think in, in during the Suharto era, we have this program called transmigration. Mm. So pretty much like the government tried to encourage uh, people from in Java. Like remember, Indonesia has you know we have like seventeen thousand island, mm. but about seventy to seventy five percent of Indonesian live in Java. Yeah. So Java is one of the most densest place in the world. So one of these program back then is to, you know, to give people two hectares of land mm. in the outer islands. So have, have people move out of Java to the, the you know, the, the outer Transmigration island. means like... Transmigration, like yeah. Leave, 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 leave where you've migrated to migration. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. And so, in, so this, if you don't manage it well, it can create, you know, uh, create resentment in the target provinces, right? Because you have uh, people that Where come to your... Where is the foreigner, quote-unquote, getting the opportunity? Yeah, two hectares of land. Yeah, why don't you give plus us two supplies. hectares of Yeah, why not me, right? Yeah. And, 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 and you do this in a large scale. So you're moving people. So people are not... This is a classic story about integrations, right? If you move 10,000 people to, from one place to another place and you bunch them up together... Of course, you don't. You know, you you become you're building another town of the same tribe. You know, but and they were kind of people of like all from the same tribe were moved, all from the same kind of ethnic group were moved to the same place. Yeah. Or okay, yeah. so you went with your kind of like cousins or some like identity group. Yeah, because I mean, it's also simple, easier to execute, right? right? That program because people know each other, they speak the same, you know, local dialects. Yeah. And remember, this program is also voluntary. Right. Like, it's not like a forced mig- transmigrations. It was voluntary. But, you know, in this particular section, in, in nothing in West, you know, okay, Barat, okay, in is the it a central, type of colonialism? Because it, it comes with the concept, right? It's probably taken it's, from it's colonialism, right? It's getting familiar, set the colonialism. Yeah. Kind yeah, of, you know, yeah, like, feeling, feeling familiar. Yeah, yeah. I can appreciate the the intention, right? Mm. Because you don't want to. Do, I mean, because we don't have enough. You know, the the spread of. You know, imagine that. You know, twenty five percent of people, the population in one place, while the rest of the countries. You know, like there's so many you know open lands and available. Right, when people can actually start over. Um, but again, right. Ideas and intention and execution is always, you know, they don't necessarily uh, go well, right? And it is kind of thing, it proved fatal. Mm. So I think the program after 10 years, I think it just built resentment from one tribe to another. And then there when was the, interest in one specific location that that awful oh, no, no, violence no. happened this, or lots of no, different... it happens in many parts. Right. Uh, if you take a look at Jakarta '98, right. there were like prosecution of um, ethnic Chinese, for example. Mm. Right. So there are women raped, and if you are a Chinese uh, store, shop owners, they get burned down. That's I mean, look it up. It was pretty brutal. But it's also happened in like Maluku. The the <laughs> the dictator falling, like then, like it was open game on resentments. Yeah. But it's also right in Ida, the the Chinese Chinese is a it's a minority in Indonesia, of course, right? Um, but it's also at the time it was uh, it was seen as the rich class, right? 
Mm-hmm. Oh, these are people that control the money in Indonesia. And there is a lot of claim that, you know. Like you and your family? Is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Jason, right? <laughs> you will have, you will have, you know, they con- you control the 80% of Indonesian economy, mm-hmm. which is of course not true, right? But what happened is that um, during the dictatorship, if you are, um, because remember, Indonesia used to have the second largest non-governing communist party in the world in the 60s. Mm. We were pretty lefties, right? Mm. And if you, and in, in 1965, there was like a coup by Suharto against our first uh, president, mm. and we, I think, we lost about a million or two million people through through killings, communal wow. killings, and military coups and everything. So this is like, remember, in the 60s, there were a huge about the you know, anti-communist movement, right? Mm. In Vietnam, in, in Southeast yeah. Asia, so Indonesia was that. Except that the killing happened without, you know, except that the killing happened by Indonesian military to its own people, uh, not by the American invading Vietnam, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the association is always that, right? And so after that, if you are a Chinese descent. It is pretty much almost impossible for you to join, you know, the government, like being a police and work as a civil servant. There's a lot of prejudice, right? Because so you are in, seen as in Malaysia. I think there are even sort of quotas or laws against, yeah, or, or prejudice against <laughs> Chinese Malaysians. It, by um, law, yeah. by law, is in Malaysia. In Indonesia, it's not by law. Just by practice. In Indonesia, we're supposed to be equal. But mm-hmm. at that time, it's just pretty much, right? If you know by names, and, and it will not be, it's almost impossible for you to, to work in the government, right? Mm. Or participate as part of the governance. Um, there are exceptions, but very few exceptions. So what happened is, a lot of the Chinese ethnics just start, so what, you, what do you do? So you start trading, right? Small shops. This is the oppressed community that like, gets into yeah. trading. Yeah. yeah, being, you know, yeah. being, and then so, so yeah, in a small town, you have the, you, they are the one running shops, right? Like your parents, right? Yeah, my parents, my family, yeah. but it's a lot of other families as well, right? Yeah. Become re- in retail, big or small. Mm. Um, but it's also. And uh, then you make money and then you're resented like just in the new way. <laughs> yeah, yeah but it's also, yeah. right? These are, I mean, owning a store is feasible, Mm. Right, but it's not massive, massive wealth. Right, we are talking about small business, mom and pop businesses. But right. so today in in Egypt, there is sort of also that that business side from the Christian minority, which has sort yeah. of also certain blocks to different different positions and like implicit and explicit. Um, some of the weirdest, like even like playing football, there's. There's blocks mm-hmm. um, if you're a Christian, but then you've also got sort of like people doing their own businesses and you've got very wealthy Christian yep. Egyptians. I think, mm-hmm. I don't know if Suarez is like one of the richest, yep. Egypt, one, he's one of the richest Egyptians. I don't know if he's the, yep. the richest. Um, but it, it's all depending on the framing Right? You can frame any type of any cities in certain ways, and suddenly they become very obvious. Mm. Right? You can frame what? Many, anxiety. You can, no, you can, you can frame any ethnicities, in, ethnicities within the social yeah. structure of any, a country, right? Yeah. And you can say, highlight them and say, why are they, right? 
of of represented in within certain segment of the society yeah right? and and ignore everything else around it right why the chinese community is often represented in business small business for example well because there's no other way right you have mm-hmm. to earn a living mm-hmm. at some point mm. right and if you put a spotlight on that then of course certain conspiracy conspiracy theories and everything is this is this a contributing factor to be you being in Egypt in the sense that if you're a Chinese family in that context, you might be like, look, let's let's send our children abroad or encourage them to go abroad because then they'll have different different opportunities because sort of they won't have an equal playing field in this country. Um, no, because in, the wonderful thing is after the revolution, right, this... Implicit discriminations and everything were addressed directly. You, yeah, you were already in Australia. You know that, yeah. 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 Um, you know, the Lunar New Year now is a national holiday in Indonesia. The nice. Chinese New Year. Nice. Right? And if it's because of uh, our uh, fourth president. When Suharto resigned, we have the vice president become a president. He became a, a caretaker president, right? for one year then the next election okay we have Abdurrahman Wahid right mm. he was actually a Muslim cleric mm. like the you know the leader of the largest Muslim organization in, in Indonesia mm. and he was brilliant mm. in terms of like, innovator and reform in terms of like cultural life so in terms of that I've in in he he ruled for two years. After that, he got impeached by his political enemies and everything. But within these two years, he opened up all this uh, social, you know, like the Chinese New Year become a, a national holiday. You can have multilingual newspapers. You have Chinese newspapers and programs, and you can school. The language become flourish. The culture, the Chinese minority culture, is actually flourish in Indonesia, mm. right? Um, so then, right now, for example, you will see, right, Chinese administrators in the government and police. So it become open. So that that was the fruit of the revolution. What was this guy's philosophy? It was about uh, like how to make a kind of multi ethnic state. No, I mean, like we Indonesia was founded on this uh, idea, uh, as we call it, Bineka Tungalika. Right. It's pretty much like it's similar to the um, the the American motto, you know. What is it? The we call it the, the uni, uh, unity in diversities, right? Mm-hmm. But within the foundation of the state, we always embrace the idea that we are multi-ethnics. This is what since 1945. It's just that you know the idea and the practice they don't they didn't match. Mm. But after the revolution, there was the embrace of this kind of, okay, right? If you're born, okay, if you're ethnic Chinese, if you were born in, you know, in Indonesia, you are Indonesian, right? And, but it's also Indonesian, you know, we have, we have Arab uh, ethnics, for example, from Yemen. We have large population as well, right? Uh, also from India and from other parts of the world, right? Uh, so yeah, that so the so that after the revolution, this thing, the space for culture just just flourishes. Wow. 
open. So going going back a bit, it was um really interesting to learn about this violence after after the revolution and fall of the dictator. I think that's one of the things that I learned about authoritarian systems is they're really like the kind of my way or chaos, right? Mm-hmm. That they and yeah. that's that's very explicit. That's been yeah. very explicit, um, whether it's in Syria or Libya, um, Yemen, or, yeah, and in and in those places, they've really sort of proved the point by making, yeah, <laughs> by the chaos, um, mm-hmm. the chaos being made. It's also like the secret of um, what encourages the dictator to stay, to gain and stay in power. Like Syed in Tunisia is kind of using. Using that logic, some of CC's logic is to um, is to be saying, "Well, look at all these people trying to like cause the revolution and break the country, and we'll just we'll end up like Syria." And so you've got to do what I say. So it's one of the forms of um, of repression. So that's that's really like that's like. Lucky is maybe a fair way to put it that then Indonesia can get like unfortunately it does turn out to be a little bit true sometimes, right? That it does sound like that there was chaos and violence kind of un um untapped in the way that like, yeah, the British and Americans invading Iraq created a lot of violence and took the lid off. <laughs> yeah. Took the lid off a like a settlement that had a different type of violence, right? Like mm-hmm. that was enforced through violence, but um, had a stability uh, from that, or was delaying the instability? I don't know. Um, I don't know which. Um, I mean, it's, you can see, right? The how, for example, Venezuela, right? Mm. It's been in pain for the past twenty years, and then there have been a time, right, to change the system through protests, right. And it just bleeds. And right now, the country is in really terrible state. Right? We have mm. refugees streaming out of Venezuela to neighboring countries. Um, and sometimes the system, you know, just is too strong and you couldn't, you know, make the change and the old system change. And what remains, right, they remain in power. And, is, yeah, this kind of... So, I, heard that, I heard that about Syria, there was a, like a saying in Arabic, like either Assad or we burn the country. And it turns out, like you get both, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. That you stay, yeah. but we burn, we burn the country. Because um, Venezuela, like, correct me if I'm wrong, it's had like the kind con- continuity of government, yes, that is causing all the problems. Yeah, yeah, from suffrage and his replacement, right? Um, yeah. But so it, it when just... you see revolutions like in Iran. Or like where else has been revolting recently? Um, do you feel because from from my from my point of view in Egypt, I wasn't there for the revolution, but I did. Um, I I I learned about it after I arrived. I and even at five years distance, it feels incredibly inspirational and bold, and it touched me and it changed me and it. It shaped my ideas of liberty and bravery, even at that distance. Unfortunately, it also crushed my hope, right? And it really does uh, 
I mean, when I see protests in other countries, I'm just scared that they would meet the same level of repression that has ultimately come. That will happen. The repression always happens. Mm. Right? Um, but have you seen it through history, it's the, it's the price that people are willing to pay. To pay. You see in Myanmar, for example, right? Two years ago. Yeah. I think today is actually the second year anniversary after the military junta took over the Aung San Suu Kyi civilian government. Yeah. Right? They, they were already quite inside the government, oh. but then they were like, yeah. And that's, that, that settlement isn't enough. Let's take it. Let's take it. Oh, um, yeah. that is that is a place like it's um, perhaps the weirdest place that I've been. <laughs> um, it's just like uh, normally you kind of spend a few days in a country and like you get this like arrogance that you think you understand it. But I spent yeah. sort of five days in Myanmar and I'm like, just, just like understand <laughs> zero. Like it's got hundred, like over a hundred ethnic groups and that's just the official ones. And yeah. like my colleague was like, oh yeah, we've got 15 uh, armed conflicts going on. I'm like, you've got what? <laughs> Is that yeah. Some of them have peace processes. And it's just like th- those numbers really fascinated me. Obviously, like you've got hundred ethnic groups, not counting the Rohingya, against yeah. whom you are conducting a yeah. genocide. Um, yeah. I was um, in Yangon, and there they they were also sort of people I met were very, very nice. And the few conversations I had about it were then a bit uh, like anti, anti-Rohingya, because there's that, there's that yeah. propaganda, which is like very difficult, um, very difficult to hear. And a, a friend of mine that was living there and, working in development and whatnot and very obsessed with the news. He was like, oh, the only way out is civil war. And I'm like, well, like what <laughs> like like what's he's not a kind of he's not a bellicose warmongering yeah. person, yeah. but he's just arrived at like yeah. the, the only way out yeah. is like like revisit those 15 armed conflicts yeah. or whatever it is, fire yeah. them, fire them up again. And yeah. that, that's what that's what's happening. And the young people are like, did you you must have seen these kind of like people on social media documenting like their pathway from like a student protester to the guerrilla fighter? Uh, <laughs> no, I haven't. Uh, no, I haven't followed it. Yeah. And you get like the social media influencers now training in the jungle with the gun. Yeah, um, yeah. Like mine was a bit, it's a bit. It's it's a bit it's a bit wild and really yeah just I mean uh, yeah. and here's here's the thing right this is this is the interesting thing Myanmar is a Buddhist majority country right right and the image I, I'm a Buddhist right but the image of you know Buddhism you know like as a as a religion of faith is always in the, the Dalai Lama right. Of course, the softy and peaceful, you know, people and everything. But you'll see in in Myanmar, you know, when a, when a faith is you know, combined, it's part of the state, right? It just become you know a tool of oppression, and you'll see that in Myanmar, mm. right? So that's it, you know. It just and of course you can see you see the monks, right, advocating for the you know the explosion and the murder of the, the Rohingya. 
but so, is is this 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 happens for a lot of religions? And so that was interesting that you were like, oh, there's a leader from a Islamic party that has found these really great secular solutions for yeah. ethnic coexistence because a lot of then Islamic influenced politics is a bit uh, stereotyped as being hardline and less tolerant and that's that's not necessarily true um at all but it comes as a surprise like what is it is it that when you put something in an institution and make it powerful it will become repressive so it's it's not to do with religion it's to do with power or is there something like particular about how religion can become co-opted in oppressive structures? I think it's, if you take a look from histories, right, um, the proximity to power is intoxicating. Yeah. Right. That's, that's what I feel um, when I'm co-hosting a podcast with you. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> we are part of a media empire now, right? And... You can see from the papal states, right, in Italy. Um, mm. You can see everywhere. Um, and it is it's intoxicating and it influences usually men, right? Mm-hmm. And the power that patriarchy uh, allows, can enables. It's, it's just corrupting. So sorry, say more about that, sorry? Sorry, uh, it's corrupting, like, that's why the importance of the separation between church and state and church and, you know, that's why the idea is you should separate power as, you know, between these two, the military, military and money away from the, from the religion and faith. It's a good idea. It's not necessarily have you, absolute. Have you found the solution for FIFA? Because they're like the, <laughs> the power and the religion of football. Have kind yeah, of they, put they, into, they're it's corrupt, right? It's one, it's because we tolerate, corrupt. because we tolerate, we love football and we tolerate all the shenanigans and dirty tricks they're doing to enable, you know, all mm. the system to work. It's all right, you know, because they are our corrupt. <laughs> mm. They are, right, they are our, you know, it's just criminals, but it's for so, us. So what is the other, like, because we're kind of talking about um, revolutions today, which is great. Um, uh, they are like what are the other tricks of how authoritarian systems like reproduce and co-opt um co-opt people because i think what you said about being power being intoxicating like how it links with patriarchy there's this line about like uh, every egyptian man is this little this is sorry. This I shouldn't it's bordering on racist stereotypes. There's um, you're, you're a British man. That's that comes naturally to you. <laughs> thank you for recognizing my culture, Dodi. I feel included. You get Lunar New Year. I get um, uh, racist colonial stereotypes. Do I just get from the, from your from your British side and Portuguese side? Yeah, thank you very much. I've got some South African in there as well. We can uh, see, we can see see white South African. We can see see what your conclusions are about that. Do I get um, kind of like 
one day of racist colonial holiday a year then? <laughs> or like, <laughs> what is it? Um, so but there's the idea that the dictatorship of the uh of of the country is then reproduced by uh men at the family at the family level like what have you kind of seen in common in is would you see something in common in in authoritarian regimes or is it kind of very different when it's done through that religious lines versus when it's done through a secular way versus when it's done through like a communist way or a militaristic way? It's, you know, it's, the thing is the the real, the world is not, you know, black and white, you know, and mm-hmm. you can see authoritarian. So that's not what British culture taught me, but uh, carry on. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, like Singapore, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Singapore is an authoritarian state, mm. right? But it's really successful as an as a society, mm. right? The realm of politics is very limited, but in terms of economy, social movement, health, in every single metric, they are like the Scandinavian, you know, of Southeast Asia. Yeah, right. Even even China, okay, for whatever their failings are and whatever you know restriction they have to the to their populace, right? It is one of the most successful poverty eradication program in the world, right? Yeah. If you compare China 30 or 40 years ago to compare to China now, you know, it's night and day, right? So that is a sense of achievement, mm-hmm. right? Um, like they say, right? I mean, it is, it's, at some point, right, democracy is really, really important, and I really believe in freedom, right? But governance is also important, mm. right? You cannot just say, okay, I have everything, but, you know, govern badly, right? You can see, even like, if you take a look at what's going on in Brexit, you know, after the impact of Brexit, right? Mm-hmm. Or even in the We're US. We're getting very personal in this call. No, no, no. I'm, I'm just talking about, right? <laughs> there is a lot of failing democracies in terms of, like, democracies that fail to govern properly, mm. Right? democracies that fail to, you know, uplift, right, and benefit their... And look at Pakistan, mm. right? Pakistan has, has, you know, has all the emblems of democracies, right? Elections and... Well, my striking example of that was Tunisia, which was until recently seen as, like, the success story of the Arab Spring because it had led to a democratic transition, and when I was thinking of going to live there because I wanted to breathe the air of air of freedom and the seaside and um, mm-hmm. sort of the legacies of French colonialism, um, like I said to people, like, ah, oh, it's so nice to see that you're so free. And mm-hmm. then they're like, no, it's not if you can't afford to, like, eat or you don't have a job. And I'm like, well, I'd take... Like I mean, it's not my place to. It's not my place to, to argue. Like mm-hmm. um, for sure, as as I'm not living it. I um, I think like you put it. You put it quite nicely because, like you, I always also believe in 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 freedom and um, like like wish uh, wish I'd had that celebrated um obviously and then in in the subsequent like years the democratically elected president has uh consolidated power 
um, into kind of essentially a coup. Um, so now, and and the economy is still broken. So I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it was it was a real example where where they had um, they had ten years, the, a decade, yeah. Yeah, yeah, oh, or maybe like I can't remember when the first elections were, like maybe 2013, 14, I want to say. I don't know, but yeah, like that, that, um, that period, and it was seen as like the quote unquote success story, and there was more space was for civil, civil society. Was and yeah, it's it set the um, it set the whole thing off, yeah, yeah. But I mean, you have to govern competently. Right, mm. you have to govern. Otherwise, you end up in a cycle right, of harming society and people. I mean, it just that basic governance is still there, right? Of re- the requirement to be able to govern properly is still there, regardless of the form of your government, right? Whether so, you are so king. Like one of our one of our philosophies about democracy is that it should help you govern better. But I think maybe we kind of saw the. We saw it as, as inevitable that it would help you govern better. And yeah. I think that was like I mean, maybe this is the first time I said that out loud because it's quite it's quite difficult for me to step down from that assumption. But mm. I think I think you're you're right. And if you yeah, like the way that British democracy, hopefully we're gonna get unstuck, but US democracy looks really stuck and that kind of like question. Like a Western politics podcast asking about like, oh, do the are these systems able to tackle the problems <laughs> that we're facing? Yeah? yeah, and it's well, like, well, pretty clearly not so far. Um, <laughs> but maybe they can self-correct, and that is the that's the idea that the democracies have that corrective mechanism that freedom has has that creative and productive potential and would lead to better governance and better business and better lives and everything. But take a look at the U.S., right? The, uh, Trump initiated, you know, a, pretty much like a soft, you know, a soft coup, a coup for himself, right? And they have January 6th. I mean, everybody, you know, thousands of people occupied, you know, and tried to mm-hmm. disturb the, the business of government there. And it's been two years. He's still out, right? If you don't apply the rule of law equally to, uh, for everybody, anybody, right? if he didn't, they didn't lock him up. You mean? No, I mean like he, right. no. He's not even charged with anything. He hasn't yeah. been charged with and anything. He's gotten right? back on social media, did he? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. So I he mean, hasn't you have even, hasn't even zero accountability, yeah. right? All of this about you know rule of law and everything it applies to ordinary people. Right, but if you don't, if it doesn't apply to your president, then what's the you know that's you don't have is what do you call it the posturing. All you have but is posturing. They, they they don't want to be like one of because there's a bad stereotype of countries that just throw the previous leader in jail, and they didn't they didn't want to be that either. It's, I've been talking with friends in Brazil, um, so Brazil had Bolsonaro. He was by very thin margin voted out yeah. um, last year and Lula Lula won Lula's an extraordinary extraordinary um, politician who's changed many lives including 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 my own um, as I arrived in 
Brazil during his period, and it's his policies that allowed me to study there um, and meant that higher education was flourishing there. It's extremely moving. He came back, um, given what has gone and given that he was able to, to form a very wide coalition across Brazilian politics. And his line was like, no, we've got just one country. It's not two Mm-hmm. Like, mate, I'm looking at the same results you are, and it says you've got two countries, <laughs> and <laughs> they really disagree with each other. Like yeah. it's kind of uh, my narrow margin against someone that's sort of been boasting about paedophilia on the campaign trail uh, is like, I mean, it's really, really shocking stuff. And then obviously they. They then had. I found it a bit of a joke. They had. They invaded their capital building as well. Yeah. 8th of January. But they invaded it like so A after the transition of power, B on a holiday. <laughs> <laughs> it's convenient. So, 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 so I'm like, I, I was saying to my Brazilian friends, look, this just isn't serious. And then my Brazilian friends are pointing, look, well, the processes of the coup are much um like are uh, really ongoing. It's not that one-off event. Yeah. They also had a kind of good example where army tanks got in the way of security services trying to arrest the protesters. Yeah. There you go. So that's uh, that's pretty good. And obviously, like I'm a bit unclear about which security services it was because the state security service or something just like went along with the protesters. <laughs> and the, these little videos that they're taking selfies together. And so you needed to bring in a different security force like fire like the head of the army or like the head of whatever. But my friends that like, they think, um, and this is very kind of uh, the leftists talking to me. um, They think that Bolsonaro will probably be tried this year. They want to get him for genocide. Like they want to sort of like, sort of um, (laughs) really, really escalate it, really, really escalate that. But they think that that will, happen obviously what that will do in in a country where like he very almost won a second term despite yeah. literally all yeah. of his behavior and everything he stands for um yeah. uh that is um i guess good luck and then like obviously there's the the power because those people that kind of took the capitol buildings on the 8th of january were like financed um by sort of quite powerful people in Brazil that were also part of trying to inter- in interrupt the functioning of the election, which despite a lot of manipulation came through, came through well. But it is that 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 expectation from my friends is quite different from like Democrat, um, like left, left-leaning uh uh, people's assumptions when Biden came to power, and they're totally right. That like, I mean, maybe in a few years Trump might get charged for something, right? Because I mean, like, what law hasn't like <laughs> done to show just, anything? Just outside yeah. outside of the coup, man. Like all this financial whatnot. Yeah, like, but those are just those are civilian cases. Civilian, he hasn't been charged criminally at all. Right. All those cases against him, the civil, you know, the civil. Civil, I mean, in a case, right. so he might lose money, but 
he has the ability to raise, you know, he ha- he raised like almost $250 million after the coup. So, <laughs> Amazing. That's, a, you know, that's crazy numbers. Right? Amazing. Ability to just raise that money. Um, and he's part of the inspiration behind what happened in Brazil. Like, it's kind of imitating a very similar, very similar, like, idea of I pretend, like, prepare to lose by pretending you didn't lose. <laughs> yeah. With, like, Brazil is very lucky that Biden was in power because if uh, Trump had been in power and supporting Bolsonaro, that things could have already turned out very differently. Um, yeah. But all but remember, right? All these men and powers and everything, they always have enablers, right? Yeah. For them to be able to continue doing these things, the, the existing power structure needs, right, enables them, right? If the existing power structure do not, uh, what is it? For example, Trump. Right? If the Republican Party opposed him, he wouldn't be. He wouldn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Right? The fact that he was he was popular, right? He was supported by the parties and all the businesses and all that kind of stuff. It just, right? You need to have, you know, if you take a look at histories, right? Of, you know, let's go back, right? In 1933, right? If you, you know, I've been obsessed with reading about the rise of Hitler and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. right? The first, the, the elections and how they gained, you know, uh, 33% during, yeah. I, I don't remember the details anymore. But yeah, that's, you know, the for this thing to happen, there's always this coalescence of, you know, uh, where things just fall Put uh, got into place and you know at the right time, right? For authoritarianism to 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 rise, right? And you need to have the existing power to you know not to challenge them. Uh, you need to people to underestimate you know the ability of you know, the, of the charisma of a leader, right? I mean, Trump was a joke in 2016, right? Mm. Right. I would have thought that no way that he could have been you know beaten. Yeah, uh, but he was up up until. Like halfway through that night, that you realize yeah. he's winning. Like, yeah. <laughs> then right. the joke's on you. <laughs> like, and, 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 and that's the thing, right? Sometimes we have this arrogance that we we understand, right? Democracy. Mm. Right? We were completely wrong. Mm. Right? And then, and most of us have never been taken to be accountable of all our predictions for that, right? Because, yeah. you know, a figure such as Trump and suddenly says, okay, but, you know, but you got it wrong completely. Mm. I mean, like, you know, after the, you know, after the disclosures about, you know, the tape or something, you know, the locker room talk, quote unquote, yeah. right? Yeah. There's like no, no fucking idea. No way that he, you know, you could become president. I was so convinced. Yeah. Right. I think my belief that Hillary Clinton going to be president was like 100%. Yeah, uh, I, wasn't, is, I wasn't so, I wasn't so convinced. Um, but like, also the stats said like 30, this guy's got a 33% chance of winning, um, which is like playing Russian roulette with two bullets. Yeah. And um, like, that means you're not like that statistical thing means you can't be surprised. You shouldn't be surprised if it happens. The numbers yeah. are telling you not to be surprised if it happens. That's obviously not the way we read the numbers, right? right. <laughs> but that's what that's what they said. To, to, like, let's talk about the enablers a bit because this has really fascinated, stroke, disgusted me over the past like five or six years. Um, 
in Egypt, in Egyptian, there's a really great word for it, like taris, mm. which is like the kind of the askasa, <laughs> like the guy that like the the sucker up or the justifier of the of the regime of of power, and it's I find it absolutely grotesque the way people like in in the Republican Party or in the Tory Party in the UK have like gone out of their way to justify like the most unjustifiable shit. Or I get kind of a bit like sad with my friends in Bangladesh when they kind of justify again, like similar system that we're talking about. Um I and there up until recently the governance was going relatively well. They just mm-hmm. got rid of the elections bit. <laughs> and <laughs> that actually helped governance go a bit better because then yeah, it stopped yeah. like, all the stopped all the disputes on the streets yeah. and whatnot. Yeah. And I was sad about losing freedom. And my friends who are like working for government or in other things, they're like they they kind of it seemed to me like went a little bit above and beyond in their praise of the government because like I understand for your job you can't criticize openly, but that doesn't mean you have to kind of yeah, like, yeah. lay on the asking. <laughs> um but then unfortunately like all these enablers in the party like have um like there was that like a whole industry of it around Trump that like whatever absurd thing he says someone goes out and justifies on the kind of last days of the Johnson government here yeah. like he's just in even more absurd position and just so caught with a lie about the lie about the lie. And like people are literally like sent out to do the television interviews in the morning. And like by afternoon, it's an opposite story of what they've had to say. But like why I, I'd like, I get, it make really makes my blood boil. And I kind of really see them as um, like culpable for the thing. Like how do you, how do you understand um, but like that, that like the enabling class. But Johnson won the election fair and square, right? The year before, right? Yeah. The UK election. I think he can see it, right? Massively, must, uh, massively, no, massively. <laughs> so, massive, like huge, huge, <laughs> so, huge win. Well, and, yeah. and and and, and, his, like we, and we knew exactly who he exactly. was. Exactly. Right? Daddy, I feel that British culture is very under attack in this podcast. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not saying that. I'm just pointing yeah. out, right? Yeah. He won the election fair and square. Got a lot of support from the population. And what else can you say, can I say about that, right? I mean, it's the enablers, right? Of course, there are the business class and everything, but the enablers are also, you can say, the voters, right? If the if the voters keep electing the same, right? kind of people right this it's, is say, say what you like about americans trump didn't get a majority but like bolsonaro got a majority yeah and yeah. johnson <laughs> johnson won like a landslide <laughs> a landslide victory despite many years of public life that made absolutely clear who he was like nothing yeah. That happened yeah. afterwards no, was surprising. I mean, yeah. If being if him being himself is being rewarded, why change? No, it works for him. Yeah. 
right? It's just being rewarded. So that's as simple as that. I mean, I, so yeah, it's you know, it's not just business class, right? It's not just the people needing the power. The voters enable them. So what can you say? <laughs> but yeah. that's democracy, right? That's also you know governance. Um, and you will see that, yeah, it's, I don't know, I mean, you know, because I'm not, you know, we are just observers of political system, right? We are not, you know, I don't know about you, right? For me, right, I just read enough of political theory to be dangerous, but I'm not mm-hmm. an expert in it, you know, I'm not a PhD, mm-hmm. I don't have PhDs and everything. I'm just like a common, you know, maybe I, I, I'm, I say myself, you know, I consider myself as an informed reader, mm-hmm. but I get so many things wrong as well, right? And then... I don't, I don't, like, I, I find that kind of, like, attitude to expertise a bit disempowering and I can try and avoid it. Like, um, a, a colleague had a really good comment to me. He's like, I was a colleague working on disability issues. He's like, look, I don't call myself an expert or try and avoid that because I was going to introduce him as an expert on something. Yeah. Uh, he said because that like delegitimizes the the expertise that other people uh, mm-hmm. other people have that have, say like uh, like facing disability issues in their daily lives, even though they don't know like the policy sort of things yeah. that we talk yeah. about, right? Yeah. So I wouldn't um, like I wouldn't say that you're. Like, I don't like that idea that then oh, you've got experts about politics because like politics is is our lives as well, right? And you've just given all these um, examples of where you overthrew uh, two governments, I think, by my by my <laughs> by my accounts. Um, so that's pretty political. Um, and as for your predictions being incorrect, um, well, that absolutely goes for like 99% of these so-called experts as well. At least you admit it. Did it, did it, like what I got frustrated with was someone very confidently telling me that Trump wouldn't win. And then two years later, still just as confident about their political predictions. I'm like, like what, how have you fixed your system? Like how, yeah. how has your prediction mechanism become yeah. any more accurate? Like why haven't, did you revise the confidence level with which you make predictions yes or are you just as bold as you ever were no no i mean like my doubt is right i mean like my confidence for example you know how revolutions right the result of revolutions right the initial results and then the midterm results you know like the arab spring right now it's completely reversed right <laughs> with, mm. uh, with tunisia you know the whole chapter just began and it ended Pretty much, it this not at the same. I mean, it it now is cleanly. You know, it started in, inspiring, and then it and it's started in Tunisia and ended in Tunisia. Right, the whole chapter. Now we are in the new chapter, and I don't know. I don't know what it is. Right, so mm. and of course, right now you know there's war in Ukraine, and it introduces new, different kind of reality. So yeah, might might start. Again, um, let's let's maybe wrap up. Are, are there any yeah. countries you have on kind of revolution watch for this year? This year, mm. no. I mean, like that's not not really. 
Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it's like what's happening in you know. I just I'm just watching in horror what's happening in in Palestine right now. I know it. Yeah, Israel and Palestine. Oh, they, I think it seems like they're gonna. I mean, usually their their wars. You know, the bombing of Gaza happened every two years or three years. That's already very frequent, right? Mm. But after have. But it seems that it's going to happen again this year, right? The the, the escalations and mm. the murders and the killings. Was there something that triggered it? I haven't been following at all. No, I mean, like, even this this uh, in January, I think, uh, I can't remember, there's 30 Palestinians already killed in January, right? Mm. Because the the Israeli military raided uh, the Jenin in the West Bank, Jenin refugee camp. And then the day after, two days after, there's like a seven uh, Jewish, uh, what is it, uh, murdered after synagogue. Mm. Right? And the day after, two people or three people were shot by like 13 years old. <laughs> like mm. the kid, the attacker, like 13 years old, right? Mm. So that's why, I mean, like right now, it's still, you know, that's another unsolved problem, right? I mean, if you take a look at, you know, Israel, right? The government is shit. Mm. Netanyahu become prime minister, right? And I mean, they've been having again. their own governance, um, exciting right? governance. It's a democracy, yeah. right? It is a democracy, but well, it, it, an apartheid but democracy. Is it, is it, yeah, it has democratic processes, but not necessarily like democratic mandate. Like, what's it called? Like mandate? Is it? Yeah, yeah. Like, it's not, uh, not my franchise. A, yeah, yeah. It is an you know, it is an apartheid system. It's a democratic apartheid system. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then Netanyahu is a corrupt politician. I mean, mm. you know, and he's managed to go back to power after two mm. years. Mm. 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 Right? It's corrupting. Right? It just, it, it's the system. But it's also like the Palestinian Authority, Abbas. I mean, they haven't thrown, a, they haven't, you know, most of the last time they have an election, like 2006, 2005, mm. after Hamas become, you know, born in Gaza. Right? Also, the election hasn't happened since then. Like because all... we've got a rise on repression and cycles of violence for this year. But that's that's the fun thing about revolutions. It looks absolutely static. And then you're like, oh, it might collapse tomorrow. Um, that's kind of one of the one of the features, like the systems hide any any idea about public opinion. And so it's a kind of spark that you then see, oh, public opinion is entirely um against well, um what's going on but then you you see in china they started having demonstrations and people are protesting in december right and suddenly they just stopped their um, zero covid policy like, on a yeah. dime yeah 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 right after like a month of protest there's yeah. COVID. so that's also the, this is also an example that authoritarian um a government yeah that is smart enough Right, to change quickly, <laughs> yeah. right? For people, when they change, you know, when people start getting annoyed of the, their policy, right? Yeah, Dodi, you'll have to give us your um, good luck at overthrowing governments in this country. Merely, um, <laughs> like, like, everyone that has a job in this country, and that's not very many of us, is on strike. So the nurses are on strike. Like the lecturers were on strike, the teachers were on strike, the postmen are on strike, the train drivers are on strike. So it's just like, I mean, like traditional jobs 
Um, or obviously, like the rest of the restaurant, zero hour, precarious, self employed, uh, self employed contracts. So, a friend was like, Yeah, like a friend kind of was saying, Oh, you should strike too. And it's like, I, I feel that I'm self employed. Uh, <laughs> but she'd be like, Send a good message. Um, <laughs> let's see. But we've got the unrest, but um, let's see if it becomes becomes rebellion. Well, and good luck with that. Maybe or you just you just become French. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll be I catching admire, name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I admire the French. You yeah. know, it's just yeah. the way they protest. Yeah. Right, there's no hold barred protest. Right, it is. Yeah. They are amazing. I mean, they have yeah. this culture of protesting, and and, and yeah, yeah. I mean, they like this. Is no, it's not a it's not a protest in France unless a couple of you know uh, cars being burned. <laughs> you can yeah, obviously yeah, right. 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 right, and every. The good thing is also like there are security for forces like they so used to used used to these things as well. Where they're so blase about, you know, okay, a, ca- a couple of cars being burned down. <laughs> All right, you know, right. we've seen this, you know, it's nothing new. Right. A good coexistence. Um yeah. Doji, we got we got a nice uh voicemail from a listener. So maybe let's listen to that to um before we close, right? Yeah. Yeah, to to close out and really looking forward to I guess it's probably our next episode is um Valentine's where we've got Valentine's. lots of lots of voicemails for people to look forward to. Yeah. Hi. I just wanted to congrat congratulate you guys on the first um two episodes of your podcast. I really enjoyed it and I felt like I was really at a conversation <laughs> with with you guys I don't know at a dinner I think a couple of sta- times I was doing something making noise and then realized okay I don't have to worry about the noise I'm making because this is just recorded it's not here with me it's not a one of our dumplings calls <laughs> so yeah it's definitely a good feeling and um you made me laugh and reflect and also actually you made me a bit emotional with the episode or the um the one featured was featuring Stephanie um I loved her passion and uh yeah her hope in the future um so well done, well done, guys. And I have a couple of also um, suggestions that maybe you want to take into consideration and I can send uh, over. But yeah, uh, well done, well done, well done. I'm very proud of you and I will listen to more episodes. Ciao. That's um, our friend Laura, um, who's Italian, just come back, just just come back to the UK. Actually, oh, how is he doing? Hi, Laura. Thank you for the message. <laughs> um, well, I think she's happy because she listens to great podcasts uh, <laughs> through the day. She looked really joyful. It, it was through that. Um, yeah, she 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 came to be um, in the UK with her. Uh, partner um and yeah seems really seems very excited for that for that next chapter um 
what are you making of our audience feedback data? I think our target was three listens to increase to three listeners, but I think we might be around five. And in business, we call that, you know, uh, 100% increase in yeah. results. Yeah, yeah. Exceeding projections. There yeah. you go. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, quarter I think, by uh, quarter growth. Deji <laughs> is like, stunning. I think we shall we shall we should uh, pitch to a venture capitalist, right? And just showing up this graph of just the the graph. <laughs> 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 Amazing Doji. I hope our grow graphs go up and up and as we can set the axes, we can make sure <laughs> that they do. Um yeah. Close us out. Close us out with some final words, Dodi. Well, um, congratulations on the new microphone. So, oh, yeah. yeah, thanks, thanks. <laughs> Sorry, to listeners, for a delay in this episode. Um, I was having a technical difficulty, namely plugging my microphone into the <laughs> USB port, and that was it. Was very upsetting. Technical difficulty. The course about a week of delay for me to plug my microphone into the USB port, but I have restarted my computer five million times. Uh, ultimately, got a new microphone, and um, here we are again. There you go. Well, there's there's some wisdom there, right? Sometimes in life, all you need is just a new thing, a new replacement. So, yeah, sometimes capitalism can make you happy. All right. Brilliant, Doji. Thank you. Thank you so right. much. Good um, night, Peter. Thank you. Thank you, listeners. Looking forward to the next one. Thanks to everyone who's been listening and participating. We're honored and touched by your reactions for real. Um, the next one is about first memories. Uh, please do send us your first memories. Get like the little people and the older people in your life to send us their first memories as well. Uh, this conversation with Doji was the start of February 2023. Uh, production sound design is by Maestro Tarek. Uh, Raf has been giving us creative advice and good vibes. And you can find Kyrie Calling wherever you listen to podcasts or on kyriecalling.substack.com. Thank you.